Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Shred Coach Podcast with Tom Adams. On this episode, Tom discusses mergers and acquisitions in the shredding and information destruction industry with Vlad Vasek, a partner at K2 Partners. With his extensive background in the industry, Vlad shares how his unique expertise in operational efficiencies and understanding buyers' needs led him to join K2 Partners, where he continues to provide mergers and acquisition support to the shredding industry. Vlad Vasek, welcome to the Shred Coach Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so I know you. You and I have been around the industry for a long time. So if somebody doesn't know me, doesn't know you, tell me about what you do. What's your current job? What? Who do you work with? Give me a sense of who you are in the world right now, today. So I am a partner with a company called K2 Partners. Since 2010, we specialized in providing mergers and acquisitions, services, advice, coaching, to people within the rim industry, all sectors, not just in North America, but throughout the world. And uh, together we've probably done somewhere north of 150 deals and assignments. And uh, along the way, we've hopefully we've made a number of people happy and we have a number of satisfied customers. Yeah, no, I well, I, I know a lot of them. I know that you've done a lot of work in this industry, but you're not just an M&A guy. You, you know this industry intimately. So take me back and give me a sense of how you got into the shredding world, because I know you have a deep history in shredding, not just in the M&A side, but historically. So take me back to kind of the beginning. How did you get into this business in the first place? Where did that all start? So I joined... Bramble's Records Management, which later was renamed Recall in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, back in 1994. Got a job running this little shredding company, which frankly, I knew nothing about shredding, but I'd had, before that, I had about nine years of experience in the waste industry, and I kind of figured it was similar in some ways. And uh, I needed a job, and suddenly I was in this business. So did Brambles already have a shredding division or you got hired into Brambles to take over this little division? Is that kind of the origin of it? Yeah, so Brambles actually bought a little shredding business, which was started by a guy called Colin Hickey. And I believe Max Rajeski was involved as well, Dave Rajeski's brother. And these guys brought out some of the original equipment and they started a business and then sold it to Brambles in the early 90s. So Brambles was in the, as I recall, Brambles was in the, what business was Brambles in? They were in the packet, not packaging, but pallets or something, weren't they? What were they in? I mean, I don't even remember what Brambles was in, but like they were a huge part of the the industry for many years. So Brambles had a number of divisions. One of them was, was Chep Pallets, which, which really is all right. what Brambles is now. So Chep is still yes. out there. They also had a very large very large waste company called Clean Away, which was which was the largest waste company in Australia. They had operations in the UK, in Europe, other parts of the world as well. And then they had a bunch of allied businesses. They had an armored car business. They had bought a records management business from a from a moving company, which became Brambles Records Management. Ah. Okay. So you got, you were, and were you working, you, you were previous to that, were you working in the waste management side of things? Where were you? You said you were in that, that similar side. So where were you? So I I had worked for both BFI, which was Browning Ferris Industries and for waste management in Australia, running, running waste operations. After that, I had my own little business for several years 
with a small roll-off company and uh, oh. essentially so I, I've, I've been on the corporate side and I've also been on the owner-operator side. Got it. So in, in Brambles, you run this little shredding operation, and but you grow. Brambles has a lot of cash and they start investing in this. So tell me about what happened at Brambles with you and Brambles with the shredding business. So I started running off, started off running the Sydney operation and uh, then after about a year or two, I ended up basically running the business nationally and we grew from um, about two and a half million revenue when I started. By the time I moved on to the US in 1999, we'd grown to 25 million. So, you know, not, oh not, my gosh. not massive by world standards, but Australia is a very small place. And back then it probably had about 30 million people. So, you know, markets are a lot smaller. But nevertheless, we grew the business tenfold. We did a bunch of acquisitions and I hate to say it, but we probably had 80% market share at some point of the vended market. And so what, what you were leading that, like obviously you started in Sydney running the Sydney operation, but eventually did you become the guy who was doing the acquisitions? Yeah, we didn't have an acquisition department. So we would, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, ran, the, I ran, the, ran the business nationally and whenever we came across an acquisition, obviously we did all the, all the prep work and basically then had to run it up through the, through the organization and hopefully get approval to do it. Got it. So you grow that business, you do acquisitions. Uh, what was the next part of your journey in this industry? Where, where did you go next? Well, Brambles already had record storage and data rotation businesses in, in the US and in Canada in the 90s. And uh, given that we'd basically grown the business pretty uh, strongly in Australia, they, they started wondering whether, you know, what the US market would be like. So in 1999, I was tasked with putting together a basically a business study and recommendations on whether we should expand into the US. So I spent about three months on several trips going across the US and Canada and putting things together. Later in the year, we got approved by the Brambles board and the rest, as I say, is history. So you moved to the U.S. and now start doing it again for Brambles and building. Did, did, did that start with sort of greenfield startups or did you actually, you know, go and start buying? Was the, the process to buy and build or build then grow? What was kind of your focus? So there's a, there's a couple of points I'll, I'll make at that point. Number one, during the time that I was doing that with Brambles and literally flying all over the country each week, I was also doing a... MBA part-time on nights and weekends and everything else. So um, wow. it, was a, it was a pretty hectic time. I remember I used to go from, from the airport straight into lectures and get home at 11, 11 o'clock at night, weekends, whatever. Funny thing was, I used to allow myself half an hour of TV a week. And that was to watch the latest Seinfeld episode every week. Other than that, it was all... <laughs> Head down and well, head that, down that and would work. be good for your soul, though. That's all about soul stuff. So, so you're you're here in the U.S. You're doing an MBA program. What do you what do you like? What's happening? Like, so is this is this like I said? Are you Greenfield starting this, or are you just are are you buying as you go? Is that part of the is that part of the strategy? Well, the the strategy was to do acquisitions, but there's another kink mm -hmm. in the process. So, I fly over. And I was literally over the Pacific on Y2K Day, for those that may not remember, oh. was uh, was January 1, 2000. 
and there was all this conjecture about what all the computer systems were going to do right. when the millennium clicked over, because I guess the, the, the clocks weren't really designed for, for a four-digit date or whatever in computer systems. So here I was, you know, eight miles high over the Pacific on that day. So that was, that was fun by itself. But I landed in the U.S., went to Atlanta where Recall was based, and in like the first week I was there, there was a little kink because Brambles actually didn't get me a work permit. So <laughs> I'm kind of sitting there and uh, thinking, what the hell am I doing here? And nevertheless, there was a, there was a, there was a turn of events and uh, not much later, I get a call from somebody at Iron Mountain saying, you should come and work for us. And, you know, one thing led to another and uh, next thing I know, I depart one and uh, I'm, I'm working for Iron Mountain. So before I actually did anything with recall in, in the US, I changed company. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And so obviously Iron Mountain hires you because they know that you've built a shredding operation. What was Iron Mountain shredding structure at that point? So Iron Mountain had a few diverse businesses that they had acquired. Usually when they bought a, a storage company, you might have a little shred business along with it. Right. But there was no organization. Right. There was no, no cohesiveness, no anything else. So when I came on board, basically we started a shred division and my remit was to build out a national footprint as quickly as possible, mostly through, through acquisition. And probably in the, in the first five years, we, we bought somewhere like 75 companies across the US, Canada and the UK. We bought a couple there as well. Got it. So that, that's a significant, another layer of significant acquisitions to build a footprint for Iron Mountain shredding. But that was your focus. Your focus was build the shredding division. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and where, so obviously there were some markets where there weren't suitable acquisitions or we just weren't getting along. So we developed a program where we basically called it a greenfield startup and we would have ShredTech would deliver a brand new truck. We'd parachute a guy in who deliver a, a three-day training program to the local market people and basically say, here's a manual Here's a book and congratulations, you're in the shred business. And we move on to the <laughs> next city. That's beautiful. So this all leads you to be uh, highly, highly intuitive about A, how to hire, I mean, how to buy companies in the shred space. You've done it now, both in Australia, in the US, you've built divisions. So you, you're literally one of the most, I, I don't know, to me, one of the most insider guys in the industry in terms of how to do this. I, I'm, that's what I'm sensing. I guess you're right. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I learned from my, from my previous business experience. So, you know, for example, in the waste industry and prior to that, I've, I ran a commercial bakery, which is very time sensitive distribution and production, ready mix concrete plants. So, you know, routing, route efficiencies, operational efficiencies, all that kind of stuff is very, very critical. And uh, one of the things that I really implemented through all of my operations was was working with KPIs and uh, trying to optimize businesses and measure measure performance and uh, throughputs and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, apart from the management side, I had a very, very kind of deep involvement in efficiencies and operations of a business so right you know when when we did finally get into k2 and m a 
we took a very different slant to what we would offer because typically people in M&A have a financial background. They kind of think they understand the operation of the business, but all they can do is finance. Right. You know, we all of us at K2 had the had the experience with it, with acquisitions from what we had what we had been part of, but we also had the operational efficiency. So you know, we could advise business owners on how to get their business essentially sale ready, how to optimize it before we ever took it to market. We also had close relationships with the buyers and the the buyer CEOs, so that we knew what the buyers were looking for. And we could kind of tailor tailor our offerings to the companies and make them as, as attractive as possible to the buyer. Right, right. And so you obviously now have been with K2 a lot of years and you've done a lot of deals, as you've said. So part of, part of that sort of expertise is this historic capability around understanding not just the financial structure, but the... But the way to make this business, you know, something that people are interested in, something that people are willing to buy. And and from that, you've you've done this a lot of times. So I guess part of why I wanted to have you on the call is last month, I, I know, you know, we were at the we were at the iSigma conference and I and I know that you know, when people see you in person, one of the things they're doing is trying to figure out what's happening related to M&A. And part of why I wanted to have you on is because I kind of wanted to hear, because I haven't obviously talked to you in quite a while, but, you know, we've been through a lot in the last couple of years with what happened with COVID, some unprecedented challenges that we've been part of. What impact did the last number of years have on M&A, specifically in the shredding information destruction industry? What have you seen? Right. So, look, back in, back in 2018, I think we were at uh, the, the industry conference was in Nashville at the Opryland that year. Yep. It, was a, it was a real free-for-all in, in terms of M&A. All the large acquirers, acquirers had multiple people some cases probably a dozen people there at the conference they had suites business owners were literally going door to door talking to people about selling their businesses so i would yeah. say at that point we probably saw the highest valuations and deals getting done since probably the previous peak which was in about 2004 and 5 in the shred industry that continues through 2018 into 19 Stericycle kind of stopped doing deals in 2019, but other companies were still acquiring and things were moving fairly well, but they kind of plateaued off in 2019, but deals were still getting done. COVID obviously put the world on hold in 2020. And I remember I had a couple of deals in progress, not far from finishing, and they basically got put on ice for about six months because the buyers couldn't couldn't travel, couldn't do due diligence, couldn't do implementation, couldn't do anything. So right. things kind of went on hold. When when we started to wake up again from COVID, it would appear that most people had suffered somewhat in our industry, but you know, it, it varied it varied how much and, and to what extent. You know, people who I, I guess were in large metropolitan markets and had large customers and banks and school districts and government departments probably saw more of a downturn, whereas I talked to some people who were operating in, in rural areas and smaller markets, and they basically said that they were 
they were unaffected. They had small customers, most of whom still right. had to operate. They had COVID protocols, but things were rolling along. So the impact varied. Most people, most people at that time kind of said to me when I'd say, well, you know, what are you, what are you thinking now? Well, my business is down a little bit and I'm not going to do anything until I get back to where I was pre, pre-COVID level. Right. Which in right. itself is kind of, you know, it was kind of made me curious because I, used, I was thinking, well, you know, we're never going to be back where we were. So this is now and that was then. So, you know, at some point, people are going to have to realize that we are in a, in a, in a new age. And, you know, in terms of acquisition activity, really nothing, nothing much was doing in 2021, that right. kind of time frame. Yeah, it really slowed down. I mean, there was there was the random ones we heard about, but it, it really diminished over that period of time yeah. based on everything I could see in the industry, based on what I was seeing and hearing. Exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. So I, I think related though, there's we come through COVID, but but interestingly enough, it feels like through the cold COVID period, the paper price goes up. And so while in some respects, some of these companies are maybe there's less in terms of say recurring revenue, purge business is down, but paper prices skyrocketed. So that that's impacted. And I, I, I see under the hood of a lot of companies in this industry, and so despite the fact that the world has changed, some of these people are actually making more money than they've ever made before. Yeah, but that's a risky position to be in. So understood. I'll, I'll tell you, the, as I understand it, one of the reasons that the paper prices have been high, and, and if you look at, there was, a, there was a paper recycling conference in Chicago last fall where they actually had a session on this and they called SOP the lost grade. And... From their standpoint, they were recyclers who had orders to fill for SOP. And their problem was they just couldn't source enough of it. Okay, obviously that's because offices were shut down and people weren't yep. producing paper and there wasn't right. that much to destroy, which is what drove paper prices up on SOP. I mean, other grades, OCC last fall was way down. Other grades were down as well. Yep. The Right. And the reason why there's so much demand for SOP is because that's really the, the grade that ends up being tissue paper and toilet paper. So, yep. you know, you right. kind of hark back to the hark back to the toilet paper <laughs> shortage of, of the COVID days right. and there's a connection there. Yeah. So related to that, though. So, yeah, there, it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit challenging to base the the value proposition on just the fact that the paper's high. That, that's always been the case, especially in the security side of this business, but it did impact that. So companies aren't selling, people have, people's income has changed a little bit, but they're uh, a little, they, many of them are saying that they've had the more pro, most profitable years ever, because I don't know, just they've had to tighten their belts. And I think the COVID, the COVID support piece that came in from governments also triggered some value proposition for people, right? I mean, that 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 kind of makes the balance sheet a little, or the, the income statement a little bit, it, it's not clean, I guess is my way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people had PPP loans that helped and basically kept them afloat, which was fine, but that's that's history and it won't be there in the future. Yep. Right. The other thing to note is that, that a lot of the more skilled or experienced buyers are also discounting 
the high paper prices because they look at right. five-year averages and they're basically saying, well, you know, just because you're getting X now, your five-year average is X minus, and we're going to right. value the business based on X minus. The right. other thing that people need to think about also is that the longer paper prices, prices stay high, the more chance there is that somebody in their market is going to start undercutting service fees because they think they can live off the right. paper price and it starts to erode right. the, the true value of the service. Right. So given what you've seen specifically through COVID, is there any lasting impacts that you're aware of that have sort of even though it feels like mostly we're out of that, there's been an economy shift in the last couple of years too. So what what's what's kind of where where are we, you know, we're in the second quarter of 2023 right now. What's sort of what you're seeing both in the M&A landscape, but also in the economy at large in the, you know, paper prices, we've got driver shortages still in this industry. How is that all impacting M&A in this space right now? What are you seeing from your seat? Well, you know, one of the main things to really think about is that if you look at some of the available, publicly available data points, and we typically look at Iron Mountain statements because it's always out there on the internet, you know, during the during the 2000 decade, really up until the, the, the global financial meltdown, they were growing at about four to five percent annually for existing customers. So essentially, if if you were holding 100 boxes for somebody next year, they were probably going to give you five more. You're holding 105 and just kept growing right. all by itself yep. in the in the pre pandemic sort of teen years, I guess you want to call them that that number fell down to somewhere between zero and one percent. So instead of getting five percent more every year, they were getting between zero and one. And based on the numbers they're showing now, it's probably a negative two percent. Therefore, you know, the, the, their industry is actually shrinking. People are destroying more boxes than they're, than they're generating new ones. And if you extend that to the shredding industry, really, it's only the paper that doesn't end up in a shred bin that ends up getting stored. Therefore, you know, it makes sense that less paper is being generated in the first place. And I think right. one thing I would say about COVID is that really it has accelerated the, you know, the, the, the mythical paperless office that people talked about for the last 30 or 40 right. years. And it's really pushed us to a point where it really is biting now. So I think that's going to yeah. be a last, lasting effect into the future is that we are going to be generating, we're generating more, more information than ever, but it's not on paper. It's it's in you know it's right. in gigabytes and terabytes and on storage devices that keep getting smaller and holding more. Right. So in all of that, that that's kind of the economic backdrop to what's happening. But how is that impacting? Because it seems to me right now, what I'm seeing from my place in the industry, and I, I'm in a very different place than you. I kind of live in the coaching side, have lots of conversations about how people are, but it seems to me that acquisitions are happening. There is M&A activity. Companies like VRC have, we've noticed, have started buying shredding companies, not just record storage companies. There, There is, it doesn't appear like, and from my perspective, Stericycle is buying shredding companies right now. Based on what I'm seeing in the marketplace, it looks like Pro Shred's doing some buybacks of their franchisees. So, I mean, there's there's stuff happening in the marketplace. What's your perspective on that from your side of the, the aisle? 
yeah, there's definitely activity happening. I mean, I would say to you, I probably get between three or four phone calls, emails, texts, whatever, a week of people yep. in the industry saying, hey, I want to buy somebody. I want to buy someone in, you know, I want to buy someone right. in Florida. I want to buy someone down right. the streets. I want to buy somebody in my market. The problem is, so, so you know, obviously there's, there's by di more buyers than sellers based on this which de by definition makes it a makes it a seller's market but the problem is sellers are still thinking 2018 values and buyers are thinking mm. 2023 values okay so we have a we have a bit of a gap and i you know i i think that gap is narrowing because people people say okay well you know i'm not going to get it at that price and i do want to buy somebody so you know people are we we are narrowing that gap and and deals are yep. happening definitely right. and i and i think it will continue to do that going forward i think you know and of course there are other factors that kick in why people want to sell a business you know whether it's the it's, it's retirement ill health it's divorce it's death call it whatever yep but the usual factors that kick in and why people move on the longer yep. we are away from a big upturn or downturn like COVID, you know, the more these other factors kick in. Right. So we see what's happening today, but like in your, you know, we take Karnick's, uh, you know, you know, from Johnny Carson, we look forward into the future and we guess what's happening. What, what do you see happening in the next few years? What's the next few years look like from your perspective, given where we are today, given what you're seeing in the marketplace, given the acquisitions that are happening, though that 2018 value that sellers want versus the 2023 that buyers want, we're finding some balance, but what's coming? What, what should people be expecting in the next one to two to three years in terms of M&A? in this space specifically? Well, you know, I, the one thing that's very, very, very hard to predict is the future, basically, you know, everybody says, if I had a crystal ball, I'd be a, I'd be a wealthy yep. man. But we look at trends and we look at, we look at what's happening. You know, we've got interest rates have risen. I would argue that the impact of higher interest rates hasn't really hit the big buyers you know the access and vrcs yet because they're probably still working with money that they got at, at, at lower interest rates but you have to realize that you know instead of two percent when you're paying six and a half percent or higher you know that interest rate payment probably comes off the valuation of the business that you're going to buy because you, you have to make right. the whole thing work you yeah. know in, in terms of and and then the whole market is is, is by you, you've also got to think about the fact that most of the big buyers in our industry are record storage companies, they right. have their own issues, which which kind of play on, on valuations in the in the shred market, which is an offshoot. But if you think, you know, we're hearing now that warehouse space, for example, in big markets like New York, New Jersey, or LA, has just gone through the roof, and where yeah. typically it used to be, you know, maybe eight dollars a foot for for warehouse space in LA. Now they're charging twenty four to twenty six dollars, which has a huge impact on you know the old adage of cheaper, better, faster, which is what what record storage used to be. Suddenly, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Same same as that steel prices. You know, it used to cost between yeah. one and two dollars per box to rack and rack a warehouse and 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 add sprinkles and everything else. Now that cost has gone up to between eight and ten dollars. So, right. You know, in in obviously buyers 
are not going to really be able to pass it all onto onto their clients. Therefore, it comes again. It comes out of the valuation. So, so you know the whole, I guess, metric where it used to be, you know, X times revenue for for box business and Y times revenue for a shred business. When one comes down, the other one's going to come down as well because they're never going to pay more for shred than for storage. So when storage right, right. values come down, it kind of pushes everything down, w whether it's fair or not. Yeah, yeah. Does that so make sense? With, within, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think that's, that's the interesting thing because when you, start seeing, when you start seeing the major acquirers who are primarily record storage start to adjust their approach to things, you know that there's, a, there's some kind of spinoff effect. And we know that debt's costing more for people right now. So all of those factors included mean changes in the way acquisitions are happening, which then leads me to the next question I'd have for you, which is, is there room for the small three to $5 million companies to buy smaller one to two truck operations right now? Is that a potential place to win? Because I, I mean, from my perspective, VRC and, and access and companies like that aren't typically going out and buying two truck operators, generally speaking. That's not their, that's not the game. It's too, it's, it's not, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like there's enough bang for the buck in doing that. And I just haven't seen it, but maybe it is happening. But what about the smaller local independents buying even smaller local independents? Is there something different about those deals like a, as a regional consolidation for a smaller player? What what are you seeing there? So I would say, firstly, couple of things a three to five million dollar shred company i would probably class as one as a larger one not not a smaller one you know okay we, yeah. we have Good a point. once you get over the first first few big ones there's a very long and 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 flat tail that kind of tails off into the distance if you if you were to put it all on, on a graph so right. no I, I i'm getting a lot of lot of requests and questions from people saying, hey, I want to buy the guy down the road. Yeah. Absolutely one to two truck operations. And and the big guys have also done that in the past and probably will do so in the future. It really depends on how it fits into a market and you know what else they have on the... If they've got other things on the go that are much bigger that are taking their attention, then maybe not. But if not, then, right. then they will look at a lot of different things. So the pool is definitely including local and regional competitors. One of the differences, I would say, one of the big differences is that the little guy is playing with his own money. Okay, so right. you know if you're a if you're an M and A guy at one of the big companies and you get it totally wrong and you mess up completely, you know you probably lose your job and you might lose your reputation for a while. But it's that that's as far as it goes. If you're a business owner and you get it wrong, it's going to cost you real money and it might also cost you your existing business. So people tend to be more more careful, which means they're probably not going to pay as much as the big guy. So, you know, it's a kind of, it's something that comes with the territory. Yeah. Does that make so, sense? So, yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think it's also an important distinction and it maybe it's an insight for anyone who's listening, who's thinking about this is it, it forces you to be to I, based on what I just heard you say is be more, uh, do more due diligence, make sure you know what you're getting make sure you're clear on what you're getting. Don't just make the deal because I, I want to own this other business. I want to take them out because 
you, you are, you're using your own, even if you're, you're using debt financing from SBA or from a local bank or something like that, you, you're still at greater risk making those deals because it's a bigger piece of your puzzle than say the M&A people who have big checks because of private equity or, you know, or VC money behind them. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And, and, you know, when you, when you think about value, the concept of business value starts off really as a combination of the value of the physical or tangible assets like trucks and equipment, intangible assets like goodwill, name recognition, branding, intellectual property, book of business, etc. But that's kind of the basis. And after that, there are other factors that also come into play. So, you know, there's a definition that says the value of a business is what someone's prepared to pay for it for that business on, at that particular point in time. And that's all it's worth. You know, really, right. that, that means things like, does the seller have to sell? Does the buyer desperately want that particular business? How many other people are looking at that business that the buyer is competing with? And, you know, those factors really play very much into the actual price of a deal rather than the notional value that it might be worth by some financial calculation. Right, right. So it, and you know, Sorry, go ahead. No, it, well, and, and it's it's an important distinction because if you're buying the little two truck operator in your backyard who, who nobody else is going after them, but they have a, a distinctive need to exit either because at the end of their career, a divorce, something like that has occurred, then that's a different deal than if you've got three people bidding on a on a piece of business and it changes that. So the value becomes really what is somebody willing to pay you and is there a bidding war even in the current economic conditions. So it's it's all a factor. It's all it's all it's what makes it an un unexact science. Exactly. You know, I would say to you that an experienced buyer knows the maximum amount that they are prepared to pay for a deal based on their own yep. investment criteria. Okay. Think right. of that that's the upper threshold. But the buyer is going to pay as little as he can and as much as he has to up to that threshold in order to win the deal. So if you're a buyer, you want that you want to do that deal with a one on one and you basically hold all the cards and you say, take it or leave it. If you're a seller, not so much. You're on the other side of that deal. So, you know, I think both buyer and seller have to be realistic for, for a deal to happen. And I've had people come to me and say, you know, I'm going to offer a one times revenue for that for this business. That's all it's worth to me. And I say, okay, fine. Does that does that mean you'll sell me your business at one times revenue today? Oh no, right, right. <laughs> so, I'm worth a lot more, but they're not. Yeah, but but <laughs> that's you know, beautiful. In, in reality, we're completely illogical beings, aren't we? I mean, that's that's the interesting factor in all this is we're somewhat illogical. We're very emotional as buyers and sellers, you know, and so we it's very easy to get stuck in the books and the 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 sort of data points on all this but at the other side of it somebody's willing to pay more cuz they desperately want that particular um that particular competitor in their market if that's the case so yeah so you know i i, I would say to you that i could make an argument that a, a business a business buyer could pay as much as what he would be willing to sell his business for because he is going to still pick up on things like operational synergies by combining his yep. routes. He's going to eliminate duplicative overhead costs. He's going to eliminate yep. a market competitor. He's going to make his own business 
more valuable because it's combined and it's bigger and more efficient. So, so you know, I'm not saying that, that you've got to pay as much as you think your business is worth, but one can make the argument that it will still benefit even if you were going to do that. Right, right. So, no, it's such a good point, Vlad. That's It's such a good way to think about it. And I think... You know, when when you're buying a business, you always have this predisposition that I got to get the best deal possible. But at the same time, if you're doing what you're doing, and that's how we know the big companies think is how do we cut out costs and add revenue um, that's profitable revenue. That's that's the whole that's the whole mechanism that that big companies grow bigger. So I think it's a really valuable point. Are you seeing? In, in what you're observing in the marketplace, are sellers willing to do terms, different terms today to sell their businesses? So the payments, different, they're holding some of the, the, the debt basically. Is Are you seeing any changes in the way things are being done now? Is it all standard sort of historic practice where I, I pay 80%, there's a hold back or a 90%, there's a hold back. Is it, is it all still staying pretty standard in the way it's operating? Look, I, I've so there are multiple answers to that. Really, I, I have seen all sorts. I am not sure that I've ever heard anyone say to me, anyone that that's entered into a seller finance deal and was a seller that they came out the other end and felt satisfied. You know, I've heard mm. of court court cases where things blew up. Uh, yeah. I've heard of all sorts of different things. So, you know, I would never advise one of my sellers to enter into one of those deals. There's probably one exception. And that and when Stereocycle were buying, they used to like to have sellers finance a part of the deal. But you're dealing with Stereocycle and, you know, you're much more likely to get paid than you are from some, some little guy that's going to disappear. Right. And right. you never really know. So that, that would be the only exception. Otherwise, I don't think I would really ever advise any of my clients to enter into a, into a seller finance deal. Good. Good. That's that's helpful to hear that. All right. I'm going to come at something from a little bit different perspective. We're getting close to the end, but I just want to, because I feel like this has been really helpful. So let's assume you've got somebody who comes to you who is an owner who is not ready to sell today, but they see in their own horizon. And, you know, we're, we're noticing in the industry, and this is happening across the board in small businesses, that baby boomers are aging out. They want to sell. They want to sell out of their businesses. But let's say somebody feels like they've got three years uh, runway left in them and they want to do something in the next three years. They want to retire. They just, that's where they're going. What three pieces or what what basic advice would you give them in terms of preparing themselves today for what happens in three years? Even though we don't know what's happening in terms of what the M&A market will look like, what should they be doing today to prepare for this exit? Okay, so that's actually fairly fairly easy. It doesn't mean that everybody does it. All right, so I would right. say you got to get your business into sale-ready condition as soon as possible. That would include things like contracts, Make sure that your contracts are up to date. If yep. they're expired, get them re-signed. You'd be amazed at how many people have contracts that were signed in 2008 and they're still running and they're kind of, you know, they, they, may, they think they've got an evergreen clause, but it's not really clear what it is and, you know, get it re-signed. If they're right. not signed, get them signed. There's a huge number of contracts that people have in their files that are not signed by the client. Check the assignment clause. This is this is something that the old NAID standard contract that used to be up on the website had a provision that said contracts couldn't be assigned without written permission. 
Nade, we actually lobbied once we saw this. We lobbied to Nade to to change that and make it easier on sellers. And Nade changed yeah. it. Bob Johnson changed it many years ago. But I still find lots of people still use the old form, and they've got lots of yes. unassignable contracts. Okay, if you have an unassignable yes. contract, then I might turn around and say you need to get a consent signed before the deal closes, and there can be a real holdup. So another area is financials. Make sure the numbers make sense and are accurate. You know, having numbers that can't be backed up by information or, you know, you have to revise them when they start to ask you questions about them really does not make you look professional and sends a bad message to a buyer. I would say- Okay, before you go on, I just- I just want to I want to clarify something there because we know you and I both know that small business owners who have owned their businesses for a long time use the business to extract cash in different and various ways. Are you suggesting that as we prepare for the sale 2 to 3 years down the road be sale ready you said should we start adjusting the way that we either take cash out of the business how we operate the business in that regard because it's just a fact of life that that's how businesses, that small businesses operate this way. So is it is it sort of reworking so that the financials have cleaner lines to them? Is that what you're saying there? Well, there's a difference between taking cash out of the business and, and running costs through the business. Okay. You know, yep. I, I've seen cases where, where people have kind of said, you know, I've got, I've got three sets of books for my business. One, one is that I show the tax man one that I showed right. the wife and one that's right. real, you know, usually the right. different, usually the difference between the yes. one that he shows, they're very they show, the one yeah. they show their wife and the one that's real is usually cash for like sale of paper or whatever else, which is, right. which is cash. Right. And it doesn't really make it onto the books. So right. what I would say to you is that revenue is actually more important than cost. Okay. Make mm. sure that if you've got, if you've got cash coming into the business, that's fine as long as you bank it and it shows up and you have a paper trail that shows that you received the cash and it's in your business. All right. right. When it comes to costs, most buyers understand that people run personal costs through. And, you know, one of the things that yep. we do when, when we're presenting a business is we basically run a pro forma, which, which identifies all the owner related costs that are in the business. So, you know, that that's fine. But in any case, you really need to know where, where the bodies are buried. So, you know, when I say to you, okay, Tom, show me where all the costs that really are not business related so we can get them out. If you don't know what you put where, then, then you're actually only going to hurt yourself. Because at that point, yes. you want to show the buyer that, that all of these costs really don't, don't factor into it. So that's the revenue side. The other thing I would say is, you know, have good, consistent financial history. One of the things... A buyer comes in and says, okay, I need to see this, this, and this. And if you haven't been keeping those records, it's very hard to manufacture history in, in hindsight at that point. Yeah. You really can't do it. So the longer you have consistent records, the better from, from that standpoint of view. And the other thing I would say to getting your business ready is, is the efficiency and productivity. I mean, you know, I talked a little bit about KPIs. There are some very simple KPIs, yeah. which I'm happy to help people set up and, and show them how to monitor their business. But you know, it really helps them to get a handle on how their business is performing or which route is doing better than another or, or whatever. Uh, another thing to think about is, look, get rid of unproductive people. Many small businesses seem to have one or more employees who have been there forever. They're, they're probably everybody's best friend. You know, maybe a salesperson or somebody, everybody loves them. But when you look at it, 
you say, okay, how much revenue has this person brought to the business in the last 12 months? And you start digging, you find that there's no way in the world that they ever covered their own cost. So, yeah. you know, whether you sell a business or don't sell a business, be kind about it, but, but you know, don't carry people that, that don't contribute well to the business because you're only hurting yourself. Yeah. No, that's, Vlad, I, I, I feel like that's a really good spot to end because I feel like you've hit on so many critical points there, five really critical points related to being what you called sale ready. And it's, to me, it's the, the really critical point of getting yourself ready to sell is get your contracts fully up to date, uh, understand your financials and the importance of those, you know, manage that consistent financial history, which is what you need for a couple of years to be clear uh, with a buyer to be able to show them everything and then get rid of people that are just dead weight in the system. It's not that they're not good people. They're not good for the business, especially when you're preparing to sell. So that's an important, I think it's really important. And I know a lot of times we're tied emotionally to these people. I get that, but at the same time, it's not necessarily gonna help you going forward. So I, no. I think that's a really important way to, to sort of wrap this because it, it really brings into clear focus how you need to think about this. And if you're buying someone, how to think about them. Absolutely, absolutely. One one little bit I'm gonna throw out here and you know, if you don't like it, you can cut me off, Tom. But you know, one of the things that, that I wanna make as a comment is that quite often we have people come to us and say, hey, I want you to sell my business and, and we do all the work. We start taking it to buyers and you know, buyer says to me, oh, I've already seen that business, okay? So, you know, th mm. there's a kind of saying that says you can't make a first impression twice. And people have sometimes right. thought, okay, I can, I can go and sell my own business. And if I can't sell it, it's like selling my own house, okay? If I can't sell it, I'll call in a realtor. The difference is that you call in a realtor and there'll be a new buyer coming down the street next week who wasn't in the market before, and your house is new to them. In this industry, we have a very small and limited number of buyers who don't change. Yeah. So if you've kind of shot shot your, you know, your one shot, and somebody <laughs> says I don't like it, and that's probably the reason you came to me in the first place because you didn't like the offer you had, it's very hard for us or for any broker really than to do something with that business. So I would yeah. say, look, you know, typically we more than pay for ourselves if we if we represent a seller, do it right. Don't try and go one out and, and spoil your own chances of, of getting a good price for your business. So good. Such a good point to end with, Vlad, because I, I, it comes back again. You've, if you've gone out and pitched it yourself and you didn't pitch it in a good way and you hadn't prepared yourself to pitch, and then you, I come to you and say, oh, can you go pitch me and you take it back, then your, your buyer is going to go not interested because I've already seen it. It's not a good business or it's not something that I'm interested in. Yeah, Ex exactly. Well, man, this has been uh, this has been great. Very helpful. Really important insights, and I, I really appreciate Vlad you bringing you know all of this insight, all this knowledge to to the Shred community. And we will make sure in the notes people know how to access you through your website and things like that. But really appreciate you being on the show today, and thank you for everything you've done for the industry over the years. I know you've contributed you've been on the boards over the years there's been a lot of a lot of work that you've done plus your extensive history in the industry as one of the people who knows this industry inside and out so thank you thank you Tom. it's actually been a lot of fun i've enjoyed this 
Thanks again for listening to the Shred Coach Podcast with Tom Adams. Make sure to visit TomAdams.com for executive coaching, advisory board services, podcasting, training, and more. And subscribe to our email list so you can have first access to brand new strategies, tips, and ideas from trusted shredding and business professionals.